0: working hard is a prerequisite for being good at something but we cannot consider it
1: at the cost of taking care of the machine that's dr jason brooks more on rest and recovery coming up next welcome to happily ever active where we crack the consistency code with fitness tips on
0: motivation mindset and much much more now here's your host author of feel like it and the guy with the silent o kelly dell
1: Welcome, everyone. My name is Kelly. Every week, I tackle the mental side of active living. And this week, of course, is no exception. And sometimes I focus on how culture influences our behavior. Sometimes I target a key mental skill. And other times, I debunk some myths out there that are possibly preventing you from being active. And it's pretty easy to get caught up in the mind games. There's a lot of mind games, there's a lot of traps that are set out there, not on purpose, but they're set nonetheless that can haul us into a problematic pattern when it comes to our physical activity. And it's really magnified these days when you think about how much misinformation is out there. And beyond all of that, I also have guests on to dig around on some really important topics. And this week is another interview edition of the show. But before I introduce my guest today, I want to extend my gratitude to you following the show We're almost at a full year. This project has exceeded my expectations. A year ago, almost to the day, this show was just a twinkle in my eye, and now it's knocking on the door of its first birthday. So I appreciate every subscribe and every share. And if you haven't subscribed or you haven't shared, please do so. And a big thanks to you guys who have done so along the way. And when it comes to sharing, if you know someone who can benefit from a particular episode, Pass it along. That's really the, the way that the show has grown. And maybe it's the episode on binary thinking, which is episode number 31, or how to apply the concept of the peak end rule to enhance your motivation. That's episode number 20. Or maybe you've just liked one of my guests and the lessons they shared from their fitness journey, like Josh Fry in episode 18 or Jesse Blondin in episode Number eleven, that one's called "From Couch to Committed," or more recently, November Projects Brogan Graham in episode number forty-four. And there are so many great stories out there. And as most of you know by now, I like to point out how struggle comes with the territory. Every fitness journey comes with struggle, and there's so much to learn from how people overcome their struggle with motivation and consistency. And I talk a lot about the geeky stuff, right? Like I get into the geeky stuff pretty heavily, including some of the academic research on the topics, these topics to do with mental, the mental side of active living. But there's nothing quite like learning about the art of staying active, if you will, in a world that's ultimately designed to suppress the need for us to be active. And hopefully this little show has helped you in some small way in your quest to master the mental side of fitness. Of course, you can follow me on Instagram at kelly.dell, that's D-O-E-L-L, or the show at Happily Ever Active Show for extra action between episodes. Now, what about today? Well, the mental game of active living also includes taking time off and knowing when it's best to do so, not just from a physical perspective, but a mental one too. Rest and recovery are essential not only for our bodies to adapt to the exertion we put them through, but for our minds to stay fresh and in some cases to prevent burnout or at least to prevent ourselves from going stale motivationally. You know, I use the analogy of fitness being a relationship, and sometimes you just need a little time apart to refresh things. So that's really what today's about. And I couldn't be joined by a better guy to discuss this topic. My guest not only works in high-performance sport, but he's found a really neat niche in one of the most important performance domains on earth. He's a sought-after speaker on the topic of recovery. He's also the co-author of the book, Sustainable High Performance. Today, I welcome Dr. Jason Brooks. I've known Jason for about 20 years or so. And I've been very privileged to glean some super lessons from his work, and which I use in my practice as well. But I'm really grateful to call him not only a colleague, but a friend. And his approach to sustainable behavior change, to optimize performance, and also enhance well-being is super enlightening. So I thought he'd be ideal to discuss what he's learned about the value of recovery. Fun fact, Jason ultimately planted the seed for Happily Ever Active, and so you have him to blame for what I've inflicted on you guys in 2019 and what I'm going to inflict on you guys in 2020. So let's dig into the conversation that we had about rest and recovery. All right, I'm here with Jason Brooks, and I can't possibly start this interview off without asking, how did you sleep last night? Man, I slept so deep. We
0: had, uh, I was hosting my good friend from Australia for the past eight, nine days. And we spent a lot of time together, a lot of nights together. So he just left yesterday and it was the first chance, you know, to kind of unwind and, and reflect on it. And man, I drifted off like you wouldn't believe.
1: <laughs> yeah. So you had, uh, uh, you're hosting a guest. And uh, so let's. I mean, that's a pretty easy transition then if we talk talk about your background and your expertise in this area of uh, rest and recovery, let's just say, and it took root during your doctoral studies with this particular advisor.
0: Yeah, and possibly even predates that, you know, and it was interesting
1: what he was in town for
0: partially the formal aspect was to honor a good friend and mentors of yours in mind, Dr. Cal Botterill. Um, and Cal was the one who, you know, I kind of cut my teeth with getting into the whole performance psych world. So I think an appreciation, certainly for rest and recovery, started with Cal. And that's something that he's really hang his, hangs his hat on, uh, professionally speaking. And it it flourished even more under the tutelage of Dr. Tony Rossi, who was my advisor from Australia, who would come in to, uh, to speak. And coincidentally, he was speaking at the Cal Botterill Legacy Lecture Series. So it was just this incredible moment um uh, for my colleague and mine who's also a friend of Kelly's uh, Dr. Aman Hussein you know here we have both of our mentors in one place in one night and you know we get to say a few words and and really celebrate them so those are the two you know main influences for sure um that got me thinking about not only you know conceptually the idea of rest and recovery for for peak performers but considering it in different contexts as well you know obviously we cut our teeth in sport as i alluded to but My work in the past 20 years has gone far beyond sport. You know, I probably do more, far more work outside of sport, you know, with human performers in other arenas, medicine, police services, business, you name it. And so to have discovered, I guess, or had an appreciation for those concepts early on is invaluable. And I think you and I have had conversations, it's necessary because you know, there is a lot of this kind of hustle culture that's becoming more and more pervasive. And, and, and I don't have any problem with working hard. I think working hard is a prerequisite for being good at something. But we cannot consider it at the cost of taking care of the machine. You know, there are times where we need to step out. There are times where we need to experience other parts of ourselves. you know, other roles in life that are important, other activities that reconnect us to, to who we really are, you know, at a deeper level. So, you know, we can grind hard for a long time, but eventually, you know, you're going to have to pay the piper. And I think people who are really good at recovery recognize it, it. they don't go through this cycle that's that's like, go till I got nothing and then limp to a vacation spot for two weeks, create a, a higher sense of capacities that are essential and come back into it. The people that I've been around that are really, really good at it, they they see recovery as a daily thing. You find moments in your day. You know, if you're a busy physician and you got 10 minutes to yourself to get some personal space, they use that to get recovery. They leave that section of the hospital. They find a quiet space. They, they do something for pleasure. They do these small things. And so I think that if you, if you tap into these ideas early, even people who are extremely busy, professionally speaking, and, and have other commitments in their personal lives, you can make recovery a priority and, for heaven's sakes, small bouts of it. Can make a massive difference in terms of
1: feeling healthy and sustainable in your life. And there's some interesting themes in that answer. And I'm immediately attracted to some of the cultural aspects of this. The, um, you know, we live in a culture that is always pushing productivity to the point where I think it bleeds into things like we do in our free time, like fitness that, you know, if we're not being productive, if we're not chasing goals that, uh, we're apt to feel guilty. You know, and you hear people, there's a lot of chatter out there, you know, particularly in, let's say the
0: business kind of entrepreneur circles, And I suppose to some degree and in some pockets at the elite performance level, you know, but, but there is this idea. I mean, these, these ridiculous concepts such as, you know, you know, when my competition is sleeping, I I work even harder, you know, like that's the separation. And I think your competition is probably resting and recovering, which is going to make them better than you on the day. You know, that is a part of performance, you know, the aspect of rest and recovery. And I think where people get stuck is, is to your point earlier, they consider it a luxury. That That's something you do if you're weak or, you know, you wait for a, a specific time. And you, you just don't get it. I mean, it, the concepts in terms of the science behind it are pretty clear. You know, the stress to rest ratio has to be respected, whether it's physical activity or whether it's cognitive and, and mental and emotional activity. And so, if you want to be great at what you do, we got to find ways to make recovery and detachment, I think, is another one. Because, you know, just there's life is coming so fast at us now with, with technology and all of its applications. And it's incredible how it, it makes certain tasks more convenient, but it can make life a heck of a lot more difficult to manage. And so, again, you know, someone who says to me, oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to, a, you know, a nice, relaxing evening of recovery. And, you know, they spend most of their time. Mindlessly surfing on on their gadgets, and it's one thing if 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 they're doing that consciously, then fine you know that is a way of you know separating their attention from let's say the rigors of work or or whatever else but I don't think most people engage with those platforms consciously, so detachment to me is is as important as rest and recovery, and by detachment, I mean turning off all the channels you know of work and professional obligations that if you're not careful can still poke through i mean i love seeing the pictures and videos of you, you know, on beautiful hiking and and running trails in the morning and and doing these things. And I know that aside from stopping to take a picture occasionally to capture a beautiful moment, you're not checking emails and you're not looking at Instagram posts and those sorts of things. And that's, those are small things that we can do again to kind of recenter and get our focus and attention back towards something internal that I think allows us to to be more aware of ourself and also what's happening around us. We need those moments.
1: Yeah, and absolutely. And and you really do tease out a little bit there of the relationship between stress, recovery, cognitive overload, um, you know, completely unplugging. So if we dig in a little bit into the weeds on the academic side of things, how are these things kind of separate out? Like what is the difference between rest and recovery and sleep? Sleep is tricky depending on what you do. And, and I do a lot of work with physicians.
0: So, you know, that's a that's a population that's, you know, the sleep aspect is a little bit trickier, um, given, you know, call shifts and rotating schedules and things of that nature. So I think for them, it's about uh, having a, a plan in terms of how quickly they can and efficiently they can drift off to sleep. They're not going to be able to set consistent sleep markers like the rest of us could. Um, But again, that, that's, that's no excuse not to get better sleep still. I mean, you can make the case that they have to be even more effective and efficient at maximizing sleep. But to your question, you know, the difference between, I mean, sleep is pretty obvious. That's, that's taken the system offline, you know, for a period of time. And the research on how valuable that is, is just stunning. And I did a deep dive that in the past couple of years, you know, as I know you did, you did a podcast episode on this. And and I must say as someone who was probably a regular sleep abuser, Um, it blew my mind, you know, just, just in terms of how significant the sleep is for the brain, you know, and and the things that it can help protect against. When you think long term, as far as, you know, starting to develop signs of dementia and, and these sorts of, you know, horrific neurological disorders. So sleep is undeniable. And I have made changes in my own life to, to get better sleep and protect my sleep. Um, that has partially been aided by the fact that I'm getting older and whether I want to or not, you know, the, the system starts to shut down a little earlier, let's say. So, uh, you know, sleep is undeniable, like I said to you. And I've heard someone once describe it. I think it was uh, Matthew, Matthew, I forget his last name, he wrote a great book on sleep. And he described sleep as the number one performance enhancing drug known to humankind. And, and how many people would look at it that way? It would be the first thing that a busy person would probably eschew you know, in, in the favor of being able to do more work or, or get up earlier and crunch out more stuff. So certainly our attitudes on sleep, we have to see it more so as, as a necessity and something that is going to contribute to being more productive. Whatever's floating someone's boat in the first place, if they're just type A and driven, then the narrative around sleep has to be something that contributes towards that because that's what matters to them. That's where their attention is. So ironically, if you could help them see that by sleeping more, they could crush more, yeah, <laughs> maybe yeah. they would do it. Um, but for the rest of us, it just has to be something that we start to see. It, it's value, not, not something that, like I say to you, that, that we can afford to give up if we really want to be healthy and, and consistently at our best. Now rest and recovery is a bit different because. Rest can be in many forms. You can passively rest, which is, you know, Netflix. I I think someone like yourself is much more, and myself also, I'm more of an active rest guy, you know, going to the gym or doing something physical, that that is therapy for me after a long day. You know, it's not just releasing the stress, but it's my mind is completely absorbed in something I enjoy, you know, and, and I like that. So that gives me that sense of detachment at the same time. And I'm not one of these people who checks his phone at the gym. And, and, you know, I've talked to people to stop doing that thing because I think it really not only disrupts, you know, having that sense of detachment for 40 minutes, but I would make a case it probably Im- influences the degree to which their body responds to the training. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel that if you're more attuned, I mean, feeling your body going through the maneuvers and, and the exercises and what have you. I don't know. I, I personally believe that there's some sense of a mind-body connection that I think facilitates growth in that moment. So, you know, I I don't have the science to support that, more so just my personal belief. And so, again, I I just think any opportunity that we get to turn the brain off from all things work or all things technology and really detach and reflect and and recover is, you know, that's how we sustain ourselves in the long run. We, We can grind it out, like I said to you, for a long time and and it's pretty impressive to think at the highest levels when I see some of the performers that I've been around who work, you know, ridiculous amounts of hours in high stress occupations. Yeah, we're capable of it for sure. But again, it's not without its cost. And, and so I think then as well, as much as it's about strategies and, and techniques, it has to start from a philosophy. It's like, what is your philosophy on life? Because if you have a philosophy on life that values life, you're going to make recovery and detachment and sleep a priority. And so, again, it's it's reconnecting people to that at a deeper level. How do you want your life to go? What's the rhythm and feel that you want in your day, in your week, in your month? What are the things that are important to you? What are the things that are non-negotiable? You know, yes, you have a very busy professional life, but are there certain things that you can do and protect that are just for you that, again, remind you that there is a life beyond that particular role? And is there certain things that you can do to be readier to engage or, or step into your private time more effectively? You know, if you've had a long day where you've put out a ton of fires and you know, you know, you have a family waiting for you at home that can't wait to see you. I personally feel it's your your ethical obligation to spend five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever you need to decompress such that from moment one, you are ready to receive them. These are the small things that we can do, Kelly. As we know, for someone who's really busy or performing at a really high level, the small things are the big things. You know, marginal gains are massive, you know, when someone is really up against it in terms of, you know, redlining their time and energy.
1: And when you think about the uh, leap here, which I think is a very logical one, the way you set it up, is you work with a lot of people who their work schedules are not necessarily standard. I mean we're talking, like you said, shift work, short uh, windows for sleep, um, lots of stress and and whatnot. And you know, for the rest of us, there's a little bit more it's a re- it's a little more relaxed, although arguably not a lot for a lot of people. Now we have this opportunity to participate in, at least in our free time, in physical activity which we know is good for us. It's good for us psychologically, uh, uh, physically, it's got preventive qualities, all those types of things. You talk about sleep being a good drug, you know, if if that's going to be a prescribed drug, the next one will be exercise. So here we have a situation where I think it's pretty common, like you say, with grinding culture or that, you know, people go through their day and they're pouring all their energy without refilling the cup. How little do they feel like exercising at the end of the day? And uh, what have you seen over the years? Sure. You know,
0: and, and there are a lot of people that do manage it well, you know, and, and we use them as, as the exemplars, not hopefully not the outlier, but the exemplar. And then there are lots who, who don't, to your point. And so maybe I'll, I'll talk on both ends. You know, on the side where people really struggle with it, you know, I would suggest to you, aside from the obvious, yes, they work copious amounts of hours. Yes, those hours bring, you know, an incredible emotional strain and stress. You know, a tough day for a surgeon is harder than a tough day for you or I. That's just facts. Um, and so again, you know, the conditions are the conditions we, if we allowed the conditions as they are to dictate what we do and don't do, then we're really stuck. And I think the people who find ways to recover and stay sustainable go, listen, I chose to do this. It is all of those things. It is hard. It is stressful. I, I do end my days feeling, you know, exhausted beyond belief, but this is what's going to help restore me you know, that that's the mindset that they use this for. It's like, this is exactly why I need to go hike in the forest or go to the gym or head to some sort of a spin class or or whatever the case might be. And so I think those people are oriented, that they see that moment of exhaustion and fatigue and that, you know, that voice that we all have that's going to prey on us right then and there, you know, give us a thousand legitimate, seemingly legitimate reasons not to go do the thing that we know is aligned with not only how we want to feel, but, you know, the life that we want to live in general. And they see those moments as the proverbial, you know, fork in the road where if I make this choice, I honor myself. And if I don't, I invite all of the things that a lot of people struggle with in in really highly uh, intensive work environments such as that. And so I think that that sets up their thoughts for the whole day you know, when the thoughts come for the person that you know, is going to go and do the thing that's in their best interest. They allow the thoughts, they don't reject the thoughts or resist the thoughts. They don't need to because they know beneath the thoughts, when the the moment of truth comes, I'm going to make the right call for myself. So, you know, I I don't need to worry that at midday I'm struggling against energy or I, you know, I just had a really stressful thing and it's natural to think, oh God, you know, screw the gym. I just want to go home and Kick back and you know watch the the hockey game or whatever. They know that they can have that thought in a moment, and it's just going to drift on by, and, and not it's not going to dictate at the moment of truth. As I said, what they're going to do when that moment of truth comes, they might even have that thought more intensely, and they swallow hard and they exhale and they go. And in spite of that, this is worth it, and here's why. So I get asked a lot, and I'm I'm venturing a little bit off, Kel, but I'll, I promise I'll cycle back. <laughs> I get asked a lot with really busy professionals, you know, that they come in stuck, obviously. They feel they have no control over their time and energy because, you know, they're just like one big pinball in a a pinball machine. And unfortunately, the machine is their life. And so they focus so intently on the how. How do I change? What's the magical trick? What's the thing? What's the five step? What's the the this? And, And I go, I get that. But to me, the biggest thing holding them back from doing this more consistently is the reason as to why they would. You're struggling right now. That tells me that there's a whole lot of inner dialogue and expectation around not doing it consistently. So to will yourself or to push yourself through, that's probably not going to be something that a lot of people will do for the long haul. So again, we have to figure out why taking that action at the end of a long day when you're vulnerable and you're tired and you're stressed, why doing that is better than not. Like if we don't know what that is in that moment of truth, the odds of making the decision that is aligned with our highest self becomes much lower. So a lot of the work we do first is, uh, is on establishing that that sense of purpose and meaning as to why. And I like to, to use the analogy of this, Kel. I mean, in whatever you want to do, if it's challenging and, and if there are a thousand reasons we can think of that as to why it might be difficult or even impossible, all it need's one that's stronger than all that BS. That's it. And so think of it on a scale. You know, at the end of a long day when when that inner voice, the voice of resistance as as Stephen Pressfield calls it, and I love that description, when it's telling us in no uncertain terms, giving us every out in the book not to go do that thing, do you have something? that you can shift your attention to that's 1% stronger. And it's that sense of purpose, that sense of meaning that then we go, "Ah, all right, I guess I'll go do it. And that's all we need to do. And I think the people who stay consistent, they have that and they can access that. And the more they access that, the more likely they're to access that even on the toughest of the tough days and the people who struggle, they don't have that anchor point. You know, they, they would like to be better and they would like to change and they would like to have more stress or less stress and they would like to do more, but they never get past that voice of resistance. Because again, the, the stuff it's telling you as to what the barriers are, as I said to you, is very legitimate. You know, it's been a long day. I am tired. I don't think I could sign my name if I was asked to. I'm so exhausted. Our reasons why
1: taking care of ourselves is important. It just has to be a tick higher than that. Man, you brought up so many great points there. One of the thing here I keep returning to that I hear is that um you know, today's culture when it comes to our work life and particularly with some of the professions that you are finding yourself working in a lot more and more, um this idea of sustainability. Let's first be transparent as
0: I said earlier. Look, if you want to be really good at something, yeah, hard work is is a requirement. There's no getting around that. But I I think it's interesting to delve a little deeper into sort of the, the psychology, if you will, around hustle culture at, at its extreme, you know, because these are people who are, who are putting themselves out there as saying, look, this is, this is how you become the best at what you do, um, and stay the best at what you do. And it's just so ironic because some of the behaviors and activities that people engage in at that level are the furthest thing from what would put someone on a track to become the very best at what they do. A client of mine, um, a physician, a surgeon, had contacted me not that long ago. And, and, and you know, it's the classic. It's like, God, I'm stuck. I have no control seemingly over my scheduling. And, you know, this person has two young kids, um, female surgeon. She wants to spend time with her family. Obviously, that's important to her because she has a very demanding job. So the windows that she has for family time are are fewer than, let's say, someone who works nine to five. And so equally, when she's spending time with her family, there are pressures uh, as a surgeon, you know, uh, to what are my colleagues doing? And you know, are they getting further ahead? And they're doing all these amazing things. So there's these tensions in both directions. And so, you know, it was getting to a point where, you know, whatever role that she was in, you feel a little bit of guilt because you're you're missing out on something, let's say, in the other important role. And so this is a big picture issue. That's not something that you solve in a phone call. But we drilled it down to something that we could sink our teeth into. It's, it's like in spite of that, in spite of feeling so overwhelmed and, and stuck, what's one thing that we could do right now that could make a difference? Because I believe, Cal, that as, as much as our circumstances, such as I just described, allow us to think and feel at times, there's nothing I can do. Oftentimes, there is lots that we can do. So for her, we drilled it down to one small thing, because the idea here is there's a narrative that's saying, I have no control over my external circumstances. So for us to have a chance to change that, we need to show your mind that, in fact, maybe you do. So there was, I said, what's what's pissing you off today, you know, as, as a matter of fact? And she kind of, oh, she said, you know, there's this meeting that I, I got the email for today. And, you know, this meeting happens once a month and it's way on the other side of the city where she lives. And, and it's at the one window of the day. And they all know that where she can see her kids. It's like a seven o'clock AM meeting, which there should be a log in seven o'clock AM meetings in the first place, but <laughs> nevertheless. And so you can appreciate what this would do to her. I mean, you know, as she would be getting in her car to go to this meeting, how do you think she's feeling the whole way there? Guilty for missing time with her kids, resentful that this stupid thing, you know, that, they could probably have done through email or or whatever so this is the state that she's in as she goes there and so that's setting the, the tone for her whole morning perhaps her whole day and fueling that narrative you know that we have no power to change things and I said so is this meeting mandatory and she said well not really I mean you're expected to go but people do miss and I said okay well let's let's miss this one and in that moment you see the reluctance right because she said oh can't miss that? Are you kidding me? I, I couldn't miss that. And I said, "Stop, stop right there." In this moment, is an example of one thing you could do for yourself that could demonstrate I have more influence, control, if you will, over my life and external circumstances than I allow myself. The only thing getting in the way right now is I don't have a boundary, and boundaries are uncomfortable because me setting this boundary and saying I'm not going. Then I have to deal with what will they think of me and, and all the rest. And as we all know, probably not much. They won't even know you're not there for the first 20 minutes and go, Oh, you know, so and so wasn't here, but we think that it's a big deal because we hate to disappoint others or let people down or, you know, how would I be perceived? And so in that moment, it's not that I'm stuck and powerless. It's that I'm stuck and don't feel confident setting a boundary for myself. And whether we're talking about something small like this, or setting a boundary for yourself in terms of rest and recovery and ensuring detachment. It's that inner voice that leads us to think that we can't do it, that I think is, you know, arch enemy number one. And if we don't investigate and explore that little voice to see where it's coming from, the, again, the odds of us doing something that will change our circumstances and by extension, change how we feel becomes much lower. So for her, I said, "Look, and here's how it's going to go. You're going to feel icky and awkward and uncomfortable all the way through." I even said, "And and listen, this is a strong, independent person. Make no mistake about it." I even said, "Look, and if you feel, you know, almost uh, compelled between now and that date to, to to say yes, shoot me a note. You know, I'll talk you back and we'll f- figure it out together and just, you know, weigh it on the scale. What's most important and, and all the rest." And now I make the joke that you know we've created a monster, and she's just addicted to saying no. But this one small thing, Kel, was not a small thing because when she was sitting there at 7 a.m. playing with her kids on the day that otherwise she would have been trekking across town, you know, now you have new insight to that voice that says we're stuck and powerless. There's nothing we can do. It now goes, huh, if we could have done this and we were unconscious to it, what are some other things that maybe that default setting, that voice in my head has convinced me is impossible? But if I really delved into it, maybe there's more wiggle room there for me to change some things. I was at a giving a talk a few weeks ago in Vancouver, and there was a a physician on the panel as well. And I think he was in his 60s, and, and he had suffered some health problems by virtue of just kind of the, 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 the physician lifestyle. You know, come early, stay late, sacrifice your health, all the rest. And so he went to a physician, a physician seeing a physician, and was given kind of the diet or die kind of speech, right? I mean, his cholesterol levels, and there was some some scary signs on the horizon for him. And equally, he was um, set to, uh, he must've been turning, let's say, 60 or 65 at that time, because it was also in relation to his life insurance. His policy was up and his doctor said, look, you're you're hitting a new threshold now. Let's just say it was 60. And so, you know, the the risk for someone in their 60s is greater than 50s. And so, You know, given what we see here, you're not going to score well. Your premiums are going to go up. And so he wanted to put him on all these medications. And the guy said, look, give me the opportunity to see if I can correct this myself. So boom, you'd like to think there was a a, a pre-motivation than diet or die. But, you know, as human beings, we sometimes are slow learners. Uh, What matters is that this was the one that had the critical mass of, of inertia to get him to do something he needed to do. So, you know, he started to take his health more seriously, his nutrition more seriously, changed everything. And he jokes, he said, you know, he, they labeled him, you know, it was like gold standard or something like that on his, his check for his uh, insurance thing. And, and his premium stayed the same. And he used this, it kind of launched him on a bit of a crusade. And, and he's become a speaker, you know, f- about physician health to other, to other physicians. And what was so cool is he said, look, he said, let me tell you how little you need to do to make a, a positive difference in the trajectory of your long-term health. And what was powerful is he worked at the same hospitals as the, the people who were assembled at this thing. And so he could say, Kelly, you know that stairwell on you know the, the emergency medicine ward, you know, tucked in the corner in the south side? Yeah, yeah, I know that stairwell. Well, the research would show that you would have to walk that flight of stairs three times a day, three times a week you know, to to earn or burn enough METs to put you on a healthy trajectory to lower your risk of heart disease. And when you start putting it in those terms, people go, that's it? There's no way. I figured it was CrossFit or nothing, right? Like I I have to go full on, punish myself, you know, or not. And so if that's what we think are the options, and we already feel stressed and overloaded and tired, how quick are we going to be to sign up for that, right? And so again, our voice then, because we feel guilty and we're struggling to deal with that, we start to look for reasons. Well, I mean, CrossFit—that's ridiculous. You know who on earth could do that? I don't have the energy for that. I work too hard, and I've got this. And you go right there, right there. I am making my situation worse by giving myself all the reasons as to why the thing I shouldn't want to do—I can't do it. Imagine if I had, again, in that moment, a reason that was stronger than all that, and that I anticipated. Hey, Kelly. Do you think there'll be moments, you of all people, when it's five o'clock in the morning and, you know, you're doing the, the November project stuff and it's cold. Do you think it's possible on occasion you might entertain the thought of, oh, I really don't want to get up right now. I'd say it's a possibility. But yeah, 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 I'd say there's nothing wrong with that because what happens in that moment, you start to think the other direction. But in spite of feeling warm and cozy in this bed, Man, I can't wait to get with those people. I can't wait to to get a, a workout on. I can't wait to be posing in front of the, you know, the the Parliament building, you know, with my crew. It's like, yes, reason enough, stronger than the voice of resistance to go and do this thing that's aligned with, you know, with with
1: how you want to feel. The idea of the voice of resistance. One of the things I just hear when you're talking is that one of the things that that voice of resistance really undercuts. Going back to. You know, the case example of the, 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 the surgeon and, and making a decision to skip that meeting is if there's anything it does, it really stops us from negotiating, negotiating with our significant other to get a little wiggle room for time, negotiating time at work. If there is the, just have a conversation to extend a lunch hour so I can actually go have time to get dressed and go for a walk or a run or whatever. It stops us from getting started. I think a lot of people when, um, when they feel like they don't have control and everything is sort of imposed upon them. They feel like there is no wiggle room to this. There is no front of negotiation anywhere. And I'm stuck with this. I just got to learn how to will myself through and just cope, cope, cope all the time.
0: Your whole research is on how ineffective that is long-term. And not only that, if that's the motivation, like if at the end of the day of a long, stressful, exhausting day, my reward is something that I feel is going to be dreadful. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not looking to sign up for that. You know, and right then and there, Kelts, like you said, the, 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 the philosophy and I guess the inner dialogue around why doing that thing would have value to me is going to be the thing that gets me there and keeps me there. And, and, and not only keeps me there, but for the right reasons, engaged and excited. And that's not to say, look, you don't have to be doing cartwheels of joy. After a long day, as you're driving to the gym or driving to wherever you're going to go for a run, it's understandable. But the fact of the matter is, if I get myself there and I allow myself to be open to that experience, how do you think it's going to make me feel, right? I'm going to feel better. If I'm doing something that does that for me in the first place. I mean, you know, someone who, let's say, is getting into fitness and, 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 has a crazy lifestyle and, and crazy hectic demands, it would not be wise for them to sign up to do an Ironman in six months. You know, like, as you always say, pick something that you will also enjoy. Uh, that in and of itself will add to the gravitational pull to get there after a long day when that voice is giving me no shortage of reasons as to why I don't need to, why it's not going to matter. Tomorrow's a new day. It's going to be okay. And that's an interesting conversation, too, because I also make space for the fact that there are days where it is okay to shut it down. Tomorrow is a new day. Uh, but I think that there's a difference between knowing when that actually is in your best interest and when that's just the voice trying to give you the out, right? And and it's not an out like some insidious way of, of destroying your efforts, but you have to get to the real reason as to why does this feel like a, a such an uphill thing for me, you know? Am I doing the right activity? You know, maybe I should consider something different. Is my motivation for the right reasons? Is, you know, again, how are my thoughts contributing or, or detracting from my motivation and my desire to do these things? What, what are the reasons for doing this that are stronger than a, again, an exhausting day or a stressful day or, or what have you? If I can channel those feelings ahead of time, as I said to you, I'm going to be in a much better position to make the right choice. And so if we aren't ready to meet that mind with some counter narrative that is more important than an an urge or an impulse in a moment, it's going to be tough sledding, you know,
1: to stay sustainable. This, of course, has deep roots in, you know, Eastern philosophy and and whatnot, but to know what to trust. And yes, that gut that's called that gut feeling will say, you know, I really need to shut it down today, even though I've got something planned because I think an extra hour of sleep today. Is going to be do me wonders for tomorrow to get me ready to have a great workout after work tomorrow, even and, and whatnot. And so that's where the 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 guiding light for all of this um I think resides. And but it's not necessarily an easy thing to tap into, given that we're so stuck in our heads. That's where a lot of that mental burnout happens, right? When you have a profession where making mistakes has such dire consequences, it would seem to me that taking care of that in that environment is even more important to have as much and create as much freshness between the ears as possible because of the stakes.
0: Totally. You know, I, I always like to use the the story. And this is one that I, I first heard from uh, Dr. Kurt Tribble, who's someone that Kelly and I both know really well. He's a cardiothoracic surgeon from the U.S., And he sensitized me to an article that Malcolm Gladwell had written a whole bunch of years ago. And the article was called The Physical Genius. And in it, you know, he's he's looking to ascertain from interviewing some of the the greatest performers in the world in in a bunch of different areas, you know, musicians and athletes and surgeons and you name it. And he was curious, you know, to to learn what is it about these individuals, aside from work ethic and, and talent, what is it about them that makes them so good and so consistently good? And if I'm not mistaken, I think he kind of hypothesized that, you know, perhaps they just always envision success and, you know, they're never negative and, you know, this type of idea. And what he found was quite the opposite. In actuality, to use his words, that most of these people were driven by a practical-minded obsession with the possibilities and consequences of failure. He said, you know, they recognize that by virtue of being human, I am susceptible to distracting thoughts to heightened emotions to stressful moments, etc., things that could derail my performance if I'm not careful. I don't pretend that somehow, some way my training will immunize me from that. I mean, good luck. You had a bad day, you might not perform well. So by virtue of that, by virtue of being an imperfect human in these contexts, I have to do everything I can to scan myself and my surroundings to go, how do I put myself in a better position to minimize that potential. That's what we're talking about. You know, if if you're in a job that has high stress and high consequences, it would stand a reason that I would want to add as much certainty as I could to my ability to handle the stuff that comes at me. And so if there's something I can do within myself, better preparation, mentally, emotionally, better rest, better recovery, better nutrition, get exercise, all the things that we know would contribute to someone stepping into a performance moment in an optimal or near optimal state. Then I am going to scorch the earth to take care of all of those things. And then secondly, the other piece, being an imperfect human performer in those contexts where if you're in the arena long enough, whether it's by virtue of your own action or inaction or none of which, you know, bad results are going to happen. And so, do you have a strategy or a framework, if you will, to process that? Because it is coming. And so those two things in and of themselves create such a mental and emotional efficiency because it reduces some of the anticipatory anxiousness of the what ifs. You know, what if I don't perform well? What if we don't get the result? And those are natural thoughts to have when you're stepping into something that, that has pretty high consequences. And so I think... Scanning ourselves and doing all the things that we can do allows us to say and look in the mirror. I mean, did I put myself in the best position to perform as I can? I can't do more than that. You know, I, I can't summon a performance that that is beyond my training or my experience or any of that. The best I have to give is all that I have. So it's important then to not leave any of that on the table by virtue of having had a, a shitty sleep. Or, or not doing some of the self-care things, or not showing up 10 minutes before my shift to to get some personal space and kind of do a mental warm-up of my day. I mean, we would do that at the gym before we slapped on a heavy bench press. Why wouldn't we do that in our work to get ready for you know the performance demands and, and pace that's coming at us? If we do all of those small things, at the very least, the answer to the question, could we have done more is... Probably not. And I got to be okay with that. And then conversely, I have to be ready. If I want to have a long and successful career and by successful, I mean in terms of, you know, being able to enjoy your career and make an impact, Failure's coming. And so I better be ready to deal with that as well. Because as I said, you Kel, when you and I have a bad day, you know, uh, we didn't, we didn't connect as well with a client or, or whatever. I mean, you know, that stings the ego, but I'm going to be all right. You know, the the bad days in some of these other performance realms uh, in terms of the human cost, both to the person who they're servicing and to their own self and their team is extremely high. And so you better have some strategies to deal with those things. There's a surgeon, you know, I I had been connected to and one of the stories he talked about was um, the fear of losing an airway mid surgery. And he was, he was in a specialty that sort of operated, I guess, um, in that part of the body. So. He said, the thing is, it's it's the surgical part of that rescue, if you will, is not complicated. It's all the emotion of the moment. You know, you get told the time is now. There's no time. You got to do this emergency saving thing. And you're pretty much on an island. Like there's other people there, obviously, but guess what? You know, it's like, you know, the team wins the game, of course, but the person who has to take the game winning shot, it feels a little bit different. (laughs) So that's the state that you're in or the position that you're in. So he recognized this ahead of time. He said, "You know what? I worry about that. It's not like I'm in the operating theater, you know a ball of nerves around it, but it's in the back of my mind, and more importantly, he said, "I don't know that I would react all that great initially if it was to occur, and, and that's not a good time to learn that you wouldn't." And so he said, "I think I'd like to to get a bit better handle on that." So you know we broke it down and kind of drew up the data started to recognize, you know, where his thoughts were on it and and what his emotions were kind of trying to protect him from and how it would feel in the moment and and, and what would he need to do, you know, to, again, to be able to reduce or or minimize some of that intensity of reaction such that, you know, the more cognitive faculties can can be more present and accessible. And, you know, we gave this little rehearsal routine that he would do, and, and Kel, as you would know, I mean, this doesn't take a lot of time. He'd be playing around on the way to work, and just going to put himself in that situation and play it through and see how he would respond. And various other times, five minutes before surgery, he just would tinker with this. But all the while, it's you know you're training your mind. There's a new expectation that's forming that says, if this awful thing were to happen, here's what we do. And okay, I would know how to go on. So I, I kid you not, he phoned me about eight months after that, and it actually happened. And what's interesting is is that you know, he would tell you, you might go your whole career in his area and ha- never have that happen. So that it, that it even happen itself is pretty rare. And he said, it was almost out of body. Like, you know, of course he reacted as you would, would expect it's, it's, you know, the training didn't have him in some Zen state there. Oh, this is wonderful that this has happened. No, I mean, you react as you should, you know, holy crap. I can't believe this is happening, but that was all part of the rehearsal. Like yeah. that, itself is familiar it's like okay we're in phase one the reaction i'm supposed to react that way but then very quickly his mind swung into gear you know to do the things that he had been training all that time to shift his attention and bring the arousal down and he did this thing and and it was successful and he said it wasn't until he kind of was done and stepped back and saw the looks on everybody else's faces including a a much more senior practitioner who was his mentor and it's like his his mind just knew what to do and so that moment is brought to you by having triggered those feelings and thoughts ahead of time and then utilizing that to shape and shift a
1: different response under the conditions you know one of the themes of what you've shared today which i loved is that there are some simple things you can do in advance how you plan your day how you plan your week to get things aligned in a way that you are recovering well you are mentally preparing yourself for certain situations but ultimately a lot of these things what they do is is they prepare you to be resilient enough so that you are the person that you want to be in the environments that you are choosing to be in that's excellent i want i know you've got to run so i want to thank you very much for joining me and i hope you'll come back soon you're full of stories and i know always know that you've been full of stories usually i think you're full of i knew that was coming There goes Dr. Jason Brooks. I really want to thank Jason for appearing on the show today. Again, I've known Jason for, well, 20 years now, and we've had dozens and dozens and dozens of deep conversations about sustainable high performance, but also sustainable behavior change. And one of the things that never ceases to amaze me is how philosophical he is and how grounded he is and practical all in one. And so I hope that you were able to pull out a few things that you could apply to your current fitness journey and not just your fitness journey, but maybe you can just apply it what he was talking about to some of the rigors of daily life, because when we talk about rest and recovery, it really isn't isolated to one thing that we're up to or another. So the question really is, do you think you can be a little bit better? So I hope that the show today not only made you a little more aware of how you're doing on the recovery front, but maybe it gave you a couple of ideas on how to improve. And the key word that I always latch onto with Jason's work is sustainable. And hopefully you're not only considering the sustainability of your fitness routine, but some of the other things you got going, you know, in the bigger picture too, because life can be busy. It can be hectic. We're interested in a lot of things. And sometimes we run at an RPM that we can't really sustain without something giving way. And maybe you're showing some signs that, yeah, you need to pump the brakes and and whatnot. So hopefully today this gave you a little bit of an awareness about where you might need to start pulling back a little bit and restore some balance and whatnot. And I think those of you out there who have experienced burnout, and I have personally, whether that's from high-performance sport, uh, you know, a stressful job, or just pushing boundaries too relentlessly in fitness, will know the effects of ignoring the signals, right? Of ignoring some of the mental and physical effects of. Overextending yourself for prolonged periods of time. And while you might not be a surgeon where, you know, a lack of focus has some really severe consequences when you think about it, there are still consequences nonetheless, no matter what your domain is, no matter what you're doing as a profession and what you're doing for your fitness. Or if you guys are, some of you guys are competitive athletes, what you're doing in your athletic endeavors. So thanks to Jason again for the fantastic conversation. I mean, I'm just speaking, uh, selfishly here but I just love talking to the guy and he's really an engaging speaker as well I've linked to his coordinates in the show notes so check those out and you know to you guys thanks again for joining me again this week and I wish you of course a week ahead of motivating movement and I'll see you back here next Friday until then here's to living happily ever active
0: This episode of Happily Ever Active has ended, but be sure to subscribe for more content on the mental side of fitness. Oh, and don't forget to rate and review the show. See you next time.